1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Ryan Stakos. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Serhii Plohis about his new book, Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front, American Airmen Behind the Soviet Lines and the Collapse of the Grand Alliance. Forgotten Bastards is available from Oxford University Press as of 2019, and, as some of you will no doubt already be aware, not the first time that this author has dealt with Soviet history. Serhii has penned many books on the history of Eastern Europe, most notably Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy, which was awarded the 2018 Bale Gifford Prize. Forgotten Bastards, I am pleased to say, is another captivating window into Soviet society. He tells the story of the short-lived shuttle bombing operations during the Second World War, when American airmen operated B-17s out of Soviet airfields in the present-day Ukraine. Sifting through countless memoirs and, most interestingly, declassified secret police files, Plohi captures what it was to be alive at this extraordinary moment in time when Americans and Soviets lived and fought alongside one another, all without losing sight of the bigger picture. Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front is many things, above all, a pleasure to read, and we are fortunate enough to have Serhi with us here today to chat about his new book. So, without further ado, Serhi, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me on your show. It's a pleasure.
1: To begin with today, what was it that brought you to the study of history?
2: Uh, well, uh, I was uh, always interested in local history, uh, so I started as a historian of uh, the region where I grew up, and that was a Cossack region in southern Ukraine. And uh, then, slowly, I Became interested in in the history of the world. I, I grew up during the Cold War, so the the American history was something that fascinated me as well. And uh, this book that uh, we are discussing today, it's actually brings together two of the themes that that always interested me. First of all, the history of the region where I grew up, which is Ukraine, and then American history, also my country and I'm and a proud American citizen now. So it's, it's really bringing my old homeland and new homeland together in an episode in the middle of the Second World War that I really knew nothing about when I grew up uh, in, in, again, at the time of the Cold War. Uh, no one ever mentioned that there were American airmen. Uh, in in my backyard (laughs) on the the territory of Ukraine. So for me, it was a major, major discovery. And uh, again, I was really more than happy to share what I found in the archives, what I found in the memoirs is uh, uh, broader readership.
1: How did you come to write this book specifically? Because you'd done this previous work on Chernobyl. I was wondering if it popped up perhaps in the same archives where you're digging around.
2: Well, you're absolutely correct. The key element, something that persuaded me to write about that story was the opening of the archives in Ukraine after the uh, revolution of dignity. So the the, the major protests that took place in Ukraine in the year 2014. And it resulted in the the opening of many archives, including former KGB archives. And uh, uh, given that the three uh, air bases that are discussed in the book, they were on the territory of Ukraine, so now we can go to Kiev and found in the former KGB archives two type of documents. The first type comes from the Red Army Military Counterintelligence, which was called uh, uh, Death to the Spies, the Smerz or Smerz, Smerz and then another, another institution that uh, with documents and archives of which I worked was the People's Commissariat of the State Security. And that was the secret police that was responsible for monitoring the local population. And in, in our case, that was the population that got in, in touch, in contact with, uh, with the Americans. So I I read about about the American air bases uh, before and uh, there are a couple of really very good books uh about that but written uh, exclusively on the basis of the American military archives and now for the first time uh, we got an opportunity to see the other side of the story how, how that story was uh, perceived and and how the Americans were treated by the uh, by the Stalin's regime. So what is the
1: big picture that you want people to take away from this book? What do you want them to walk away thinking about?
2: Well, uh, the book is about uh, individual people and their experiences. And uh, there there is a lot of, in terms of human stories, but there is also a bigger argument and contribution to our discussion about what went wrong after the end of the second world War why the former allies became adversaries why we got the Cold War that lasted for uh, um, ever and a half since nine, late 1940s until the fall of the Soviet Union in um, late 80s early 90s and my uh, the book uh, tries to, to, to answer that particular question as well, and the answer is that the tensions that eventually resulted in the Cold War, they started already during World War II, and they started in particular on those bases, the only place where Americans and the Soviets were fighting side by side. And what the Americans really never accepted was what I call a police status, a state in which uh, the the surveillance is a daily occurrence where the state interferes in the personal lives of people where the the Soviet secret police was interrupting um, dating or, or relationship that were developing between the American airmen and local women. Or was trying to use those women to spy on the Americans where lies was uh, basically part of the official policy of the state. None of that was, was accept- acceptable for the U.S. Airmen. And most of them, the absolute majority came to the Soviet Union really fascinated about the mission, really having high opinion about their Soviet ally. And almost all of them actually left being disappointed and some of them being sworn enemies of the regime. So the, the origins of the, of the Cold War really in World War two and uh, really the, the bottom line, what, what was in conflict, what came in conflict at those bases were the principles, uh, that are behind liberty on one hand and, uh, really tyranny on another.
1: It it is really impressive the way you manage to capture these everyday scenes that just bring everything into such sharp relief. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves there. You raise the curtain on 1943. The war is turning, but by no means is victory certain yet. We find Foreign Minister Molotov standing on the tarmac at Moscow Airport with a brass band. Why? What is the plan that he's there to negotiate?
2: Well, uh, at that uh, particular moment in war, uh, the uh, um, Allies were uh, trying to to figure out how to win the war. It's already after after Stalingrad, after a major battle in uh, in uh, uh, central Russia, uh, in Kursk, the, the the tank tank battle, the biggest tank battle of the war. And uh, what is what is ahead is the d day, is the opening of the second front in Europe. And that's what really the Soviets want the allies to do. And uh, Molotov is welcoming American um, uh, Secretary of State uh, uh, at that time and also the, the Foreign uh, Secretary of uh, Britain to engage them in the discussion, prepare first a big three meeting in Tehran that happened later in the year, in 1943, and then uh, eventually coordinate activities that would result in D-Day. And to achieve that goal, the, the Soviets are trying to be as as pleasant, as nice to the Allies as possible. They do a lot of things. One of those things was that They dissolved the uh, communist international, really the uh, headquarters in Moscow that was running the communist parties all over the world and very often engaged in activities against states, including allied states. They also uh, allowed really a rebirth of the Russian Orthodox Church to present a better image of the Soviet Union on the international arena. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, that's what is at stake at that, at that point, at least for the Soviets, that's what Molotov is thinking about.
1: Well, negotiations for some type of cooperation on shuttle bombing do not go smoothly to put it mildly. What was involved in just making this entire mission come together and why were there so many roadblocks?
2: Uh, it's, it's it's interesting why why uh, the Americans, in, in particular American Air Force, comes uh, with the idea of creating those air bases on the Soviet territory. But they are preparing also for for landing uh, in Europe. They are preparing for D-Day, and they consider that it's really very important to have a complete mastery of the of the skies and to destroy Luftwaffe before D-Day comes. To do that, they have to um, not just to shut down as many German airplanes in the skies as possible, but also to destroy the infrastructure, to destroy the um, factories that produce those airplanes, to destroy the oil refineries. And a lot of that stuff was built by the uh, Germans either in Eastern Germany or in Eastern Europe, in Poland. Oil was coming, for example, from uh, from Hungary and Romania. Uh, The uh, U.S. at that time had uh, wonderful uh, bombers, the the B-17 Flying Fortresses, but they lacked in 1943 the fighter planes that would be able to take off from the airfields, let's say, in Britain or later in Italy, and escort bombers on their raid to Eastern Europe and then come back to Britain. So uh, because they they didn't have uh, fighter planes, and that means that B-17 were vulnerable without protection, They decided that shuttle bombing can help, Uh, so let's say the uh, bombers and uh, escort fighter planes take off from the airfields in Britain, they bomb their targets in Eastern Europe, they land on the Soviet territory, get refueled, get new ammunition, and then fly back and bomb those targets as well. So that was the idea. And uh, uh, the the American ambassador, uh, Admiral Harriman, the General John Dean, who was the uh, chief officer in the U.S. military mission in Moscow, they were really working hard trying to sell this idea to Stalin and to Molotov, and Soviet leaders actually were, as you mentioned, were very reluctant. Uh, the main reason was uh, the, the ideological and cultural insecurity of the Soviet state. They, they considered allies, first of all, to be temporary allies. They considered them to be capitalists. They considered that they can somehow contaminate or, or can, can be infectious when it comes to the, to the contacts between the uh, Soviet citizens and Americans. And uh, they also didn't trust allies. They were really the products of the thinking that came out of the Russian Revolution of 1917, where there were military bases on the Soviet territory. And Molotov at some point said that, okay, it's easier to get those foreign air bases, but it would be difficult to get rid of them. So the bottom line is just mistrust on all levels, political, ideological, and otherwise, of what the, the allies uh, the, the Western allies, the American, uh, in particular, goals in the war were. So there was, there was little trust to, to start with.
1: Well, Stalin finally relents in late 1943 and an air base is established at Poltava. What was involved in the construction and what do the Americans and Soviets make of each other at first blush?
2: Well, uh, Stalin really eventually gives go ahead. Uh, and uh, the, the main reason for that is that, as I mentioned before, he wants to be nice to the to the Allies because he wants the opening of the second front. And uh, really, the first shuttle bombing raid and the first American flying fortresses landed on the air bases in Ukraine uh, a few days before D Day and once that goal is achieved by the by the soviets then the, the enthusiasm and the interest is really not there it is it is diminishing but before that happened there was really a couple weeks of really very happy relationship between the allies i already mentioned that the the american participants of that operation had held their soviet counterparts in high regard given their war efforts and contribution to the war and uh, the soviets without interference from the secret police and with the party and state officials uh, given green light for working together with the americans were really very very friendly uh, you look at the uh, the memoirs uh, uh, and and correspondence uh, from the american side they were uh, working really very nice with the uh, military commanders, in particular the Soviet Air Force military commanders. They, they got a lot of support there. They got a lot of cooperation. Those military men on both sides, they understood uh, each other really, really very well. So it's the, the relations were good, uh, maybe for month, month and a half. But once the second front was there, once there happened uh, something that was really very embarrassing for the soviets and that's the bombing of the uh, by luftwaffe of the american airplanes on the airfields and the soviets couldn't protect that the soviets uh, lost interest in the project and wanted the americans out
1: before we get to pearl harbor on the steps i was hoping you could give us a bit more first about the relationship as the operations actually begin. Uh, planes finally start arriving in May 1944. What is the mood on the base surrounding these first missions?
2: Oh, it's, 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 it's jubilation. It is jubilation uh, uh, for the first time, really, in the history of the Grand Alliance. The, the two uh, allies, Americans and the Soviets, are fighting together. Um, again, the, the Grand Alliance was a very particular, I would say, strange alliance in which the, the British and the Americans were fighting on the same front, but the Soviets were also on the other front, on the Eastern Front. There was a lot of cooperation, but very little common participation in the um, operation. Uh, that particular operation, which was called Frantic, was was an exception, and everyone, everyone was extremely happy. The Avril Harriman, American ambassador, uh, came from Moscow to greet the, the American airplanes. Luckily for us, his daughter, Kathleen Harriman, convinced her father to take her along. And then she described all those things in letters to her sister back, back in the United States. Probably we would not uh, know certain things about that operation if it would be, if, if it wouldn't be for uh, Kathleen Harriman. Uh, and again there, there there is this excitement that's shared by both sides then a few days later, news come about about opening of the second front in, in, in france and again it's it's uh, something that's celebrated by both sides so again it's uh, really a, a honeymoon was short, but as long as it lasted for a few weeks there was there was a lot a lot of cooperation and a lot of goodwill between the, the Americans and the Soviets,
1: things start to break down even before there's a real military disaster to put stress on the relationship. What are the points of friction?
2: Well, uh, <clears throat> the biggest thing is uh, the uh, so-called Dayton rights for the for the Americans, and that become becomes obvious in the summer of 1944. So, um, the, uh, American airmen, once they came, they, they, they came to Poltava and other regions, uh, 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 other two bases in Ukraine, they were warned that they were not allowed to date, uh, Soviet women in uniform. Uh, but, uh, they were allowed to date, uh, to date, um, the, the, uh, um, local women, the, the, the civilians. And uh, uh, originally things were developing quite nicely and and, and quite well. But uh, once the Soviets uh, decided that they didn't want the Americans there anymore, what you see is that the the secret police is actually attacking those women, attacking them in the presence of their American dates. And you see fights, uh, uh, of course, uh, um, uh, happening and, 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 and going on between uh between the the Red Army officers or so the secret police officers and the Americans as well so that that was a big big issue there. Another issue was also that um the the uh, uh Soviets wanted to limit the the uh, contacts that the Americans would have with the locals and with red Army officers and soldiers to the minimum. So uh, they would not really allow much the Americans to go into the cities and to the villages. Instead, they created uh, so-called <coughs> restaurants on the base where where the Americans could buy um, certain supplies and alcohol and so on and so forth. The, the problem was that most of the salary that they, the Uh, American soldiers and officers were getting was not reaching them. It was going on their accounts back in the, in the United States. And that created also disparity, buying disparity between the Americans and the Soviets that also didn't, didn't contribute uh, um, in a positive way to the development of relationship. There were, there were also some Cultural, cultural, uh, differences. And the big, the big thing for the, um, Americans, especially for the medical personnel was uh, the, the, um, conditions in which the, um, a canteen was operated or the conditions in the, of the Soviet toilets that, that, that were there. Uh, so somehow that was, uh, part of the, uh, part of the everyday routine that the Soviets didn't it didn't pay much attention to pre- pretended that it, uh, the problem was not there and that that, that 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 appalled Americans. So um there were there were minor frictions here and there, but again, the, the, the really things started to deteriorate once the Soviet government decided that it didn't want the Americans there.
1: Smaersh seems to pick up its activity in step with the shift of the Soviet leadership's attitudes towards the Americans. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the sources that you're working through when you're looking at this because they, they establish a network throughout the base to keep tabs on people. How do they build this?
2: Well, um, Smerz is is a military counterintelligence, and it was created really with one purpose. And the purpose was to fight against possible German penetration and possible German agents, uh, either within the ranks of the Red Army or in the rear, in the Soviet rear. What we see different this time around is that it's the same, the same counterintelligence um, organization that is now working not against the Germans, not against the, the enemy, but works against the allies, works against the Americans. And um, they sent from Moscow a special officer, a high-ranking officer that would be overseeing those operations. And they, um, increase, dramatically increase the number of the agents or, or, or informers that they had, um, uh, in the, in the ranks of the Red Army, especially among those who had, uh, day-to-day contacts with the with the Americans. But even even uh, people like mechanics and others on the Soviet side, they were instructed, for example, one of the instructions that they got was to count the number of people that come on the airplanes to be sure that uh, the, the Americans would not smuggle back to Europe anybody from the Soviet territory. And one of the first things that Smerz does, it arrests uh, um, some um, People who are trying to establish contact with the Americans and those people would have some uh, families or background or would grow up in the in the uh, in the United States and then as child uh, as children mostly of the communists would come to the to to the Soviet Union. So the smash was there, treating the Americans as a, as a potential enemy, really.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: The initial missions have gone smoothly, and despite these growing tensions that you're outlining, things are still more or less working. Then we have Pearl Harbor on the steps. What happened, and how did it shape the relationship?
2: What happened was that after the uh, so-called frantic two, so the second shuttle bombing mission, uh, arrived to the bases, the same the same day, the same night, Luftwaffe um, really did, did uh, very, very daring operations. So they bombed the Poltava Air Base and uh, uh, most of the airplanes that were there on the ground were either destroyed or damaged. And um, the Soviets, on the one hand, they were trying their best to protect their guests. Uh, What that meant was that the um, anti-aircraft fire was going on, the the, uh, fighter jets were in the air, uh, but uh, they actually uh, failed to do anything to Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe uh, didn't lose one single plane which was a major embarrassment for the for the soviets and for the soviet command the reason why that happened was not uh, any kind of a cowardice or lack of um, brave, bravery on the part of the soviets but the fact that they were ill equipped uh, to uh, fight back a night attack so they didn't have, for example, the, their airplanes were not um, equipped with radars, which meant that uh, during the nighttime, uh, they were basically useless. Their um, anti-aircraft crews were not trained enough, and so on and so forth. So it was quite embarrassing for the Soviets. Uh when the the uh, attack ended, what happened was that uh, the, the Soviets really were trying their best to save the American airplanes. Uh, today, on the territory of that airbase in Poltava, there is a, a, a monument to the to the people who died in that attack on uh, June twenty second, nineteen forty four. So there there were two Americans who were killed, and uh, over twenty. Soviet uh, officers and soldiers, most of them were killed when they were trying actually to save the American airplanes from uh, and and put down fire and so on and so forth. So the the Soviets tried, but again, uh, it was a major, major uh, disaster from the American point of view. Uh, you mentioned Pearl Harbor on the steps. That's the title of the chapter in the book, and uh, Pearl Harbor. That's how uh, some of the American officers uh, really talked about what happened at Poltava, because that was the second largest loss of the American airplanes on the ground since the battle, uh, since since Pearl Harbor. Uh, and uh, given that the second front was already there, uh, given that the front line, the Soviet front line, was moving further toward the west, the, the um, embarrassment uh, on the Soviet part with, with that uh, air raid on the Poltava Air Base contributed to the um, growing tensions between, uh, between the Allies.
1: By August, the losses have been replenished, and Poltava is once again operational. However, you write that the differences had multiplied during this time. What went wrong, both interpersonally on the base and geopolitically in the alliance?
2: Well, uh, geopolitically, what happened was that in August of 1944, uh, the uh, Red Army um, reached the outskirts of Warsaw. And at that time, an uprising, anti-German uprising uh, started in Warsaw. And uh, uh, Stalin refused really to help uh, the the rebels. Uh, he refused to help the rebels because they uh, were under overall command of the uh, exiled Polish government with headquarters in London and uh, Stalin had his own plans for Poland and he wanted to make it communist so he didn't want the the uh, capital of the country Warsaw to end up in the hands of west forces that were allied with the west not with him um uh, there were some good reasons why Stalin uh, couldn't help because uh, by the time the red army reached warsaw uh, the uh, communication lines were really extended the, the 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 troops were exhausted and the germans uh, were able to put uh, together quite an impressive uh, um, counteroffensive at that time and um, <clears throat> the western allies understood that uh, so what was suggested first by Churchill and then by Roosevelt as well was said, OK, we understand that your troops can't help Warsaw, but please allow us to use air bases in Ukraine, Poltava in particular, for our airplanes to do airdrops for the Polish rebels. And uh, Stalin refused to do that, which came as a major, major a surprise but also a blow to the to, to the trust and the goodwill of the Soviets. There was a turning point, for example, for Avril Harriman, the US ambassador in Moscow, in terms of his attitude towards Stalin and the Soviet Union. And the same is true as I show in my book for quite a few American airmen on the on those bases in Ukraine. So geopolitically, the situation is not good, and Stalin after that decides, okay, the, the basis should go. Um, uh, on the ground, what is happening at that time, uh, Americans understand and realize that they're not welcome anymore. So they're really waiting for the end of that operation. The morale is falling, the discipline is falling, so there are much more conflicts between the Americans and the Soviets. So really by the time that the uh, most of the airmen are ordered out of the Soviet Union that happens in September of 1944 uh, they're really fed up they don't want to stay there the uh, out of three bases one base was left operational the base in Poltava where they left kind of a skeleton crew of around 200 people but uh, those, those officers and airmen, they had already a very different mission uh, from the original one. There was no shuttle bombing anymore going on. And they came with a, a name for themselves. They called themselves Forgotten Bastards of Ukraine. And uh, that that's, was also an inspiration for the title of the book, which is Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front.
1: The future Poland very much becomes the pivot on which the entire relationship turns. How is all of this tension playing out over the winter and into the new year? I mean, the end is approaching, defeat is imminent, and yet Poltava is still figuring at the center of these negotiations.
2: Uh, Yes, you're absolutely right. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of Poland and Eastern Europe in relations between the Allies in late forty four and then in 1945. Um, Stalin did his best not to allow either Americans or British or any representatives of the Western Allies to be in Eastern Europe and to see what was going on, where he was waging the war not only against the Germans, but also against the pro-democratic forces, and in particular the Polish so-called home army, the, the the people who were behind the Warsaw Uprising. And under those circumstances, uh, Poltava Air Base and those um, two hundred people who stayed there, uh, they were the, the the basically the the, the forepost, the, the 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 I call it watchtower for the uh, US and for the Western allies. Uh, and the the main source of information about what was going in eastern europe in poland in particular the reason for for such a role that poltava started to play uh, poltava air base was that uh, the soviets allowed um, airmen from poltava to fly to western ukraine to eastern poland to uh, help the um, american Crews of the American airplanes that were forced to land on the Soviet territory as the result of this uh, war in the uh, air war over Eastern Europe. So, some of the planes had technical problems, others were maybe um, damaged in the battle, were were, were shot at. And uh, they were going to the city of Lviv, they were going to some areas in today's Eastern Poland, and they were bringing this information about. Really, the Soviets, first of all, uh, moving the border and uh, establishing their control over parts of Eastern Poland. And uh, beyond that, also uh, waging the war against, against the, uh, or the, the military forces that were loyal to the democratic government in London. And uh, uh, that, uh, the, the, this, this issues about who who has the right and who doesn't have the right to be in Eastern Europe, became a very important topic that was discussed at the Yalta Conference uh, in February of 1945. And it's interesting that the uh, Poltava airmen were uh, on the American side, the people who were in charge of bringing Roosevelt and other members of the American delegation to the Crimea. So the... the, um, uh, air bases in the Crimea where roosevelt landed churchill landed uh, from the american side they were run by uh, by the personnel from poltava
1: so we finally come to the rupture after yalta and all of these discussions about how to handle pows relations have been souring for so long what brought them to a head at this point
2: well it's it's uh, the, again we are going back here uh, chronologically, we are moving forward, but in terms of in terms of thinking about what is happening, I, I would suggest that we would return to to the summer of 1944 and talk about the the differences in political culture uh, between the two allies. Uh, what 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 happens in uh, the spring of 1945 is that the Red Army is moving into Poland, into Hungary. And they uh, overrun a number of uh, German concentration camps. And um, among the the inmates, among the prisoners were American and British um, soldiers and officers. And uh, the Americans are trying actually to get those people as soon as possible back to, to their bases in Britain and eventually back to the United States. And they ask the Soviets to help with that, and uh, the Soviets sign uh, agreements in in, uh, in that regard at Yalta. But uh, then, uh, really, really, take no care of the American prisoners of war. So those people are suffering. They 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 are ill. They left hungry. They they the. Um, the conditions that they found when they're in the custody of the Red Army are awful, so many of them leave those camps that were created by them, uh, for them by the Red Army and go on their own, really, on, on train, on, on any way they can to, to, to Moscow or to uh, try to get to Poltava. That is, again, why I mentioned political culture, is that in the Soviet mind, the prisoner of war is a traitor. So the the uh, Soviet uh, uh, soldiers who were taken as prisoners of war were treated that way. Uh, many of them were uh, arrested, exiled. Attitude toward the prisoners of war was completely different in the American case and in the Soviet case. And part of the story where Poltava and, and uh, our airmen get, get become part of that story is when uh, Roosevelt wants um, Stalin once again to allow to use Poltava base to bring in all those Americans from eastern Poland, from western Ukraine, from those areas where the camps were liberated to bring to Poltava. And Stalin again refuses to do that because he doesn't want any Americans, any foreigners on the territory that he controls now and where he wants to install his own regime and his own government. And that leads really to a a major, major, uh, almost a um, breakdown in relations between the uh, Soviet Union and the United States at the highest level. The the, the harshest words that uh, Roosevelt ever said with regard to Stalin and when he say said, means uh, sent to him as, as as part of his telegrams, are coming from March of 1944 and are dealing with the fate of the American prisoners of war. And again, Poltava is a very important part of that story because some of those people who were saved, they're uh, flown from, uh, from Lviv, from other parts in Western Ukraine to Poltava and uh, were uh, eventually, eventually, then flew to to Iran and uh, ended up in American custody. It's, it's another important uh, part of the story, where really the the the, the Soviet police state meets uh, the um, American, American political culture, which is basically democratic and which, which, treats, which treats prisoners of war really as heroes, as opposed to treating them as cowards as, uh, and, and uh, uh, traitors.
1: The Soviet attitude toward American commissioned and other ranks relations was also quite entertaining. I believe it was the head of Smirsch who wrote the report about the party that they went to together
2: oh yes, yes <laughs> uh, well uh it's uh, it, it, it it was a costume party that the the American mostly officers threw and they were trying to entertain themselves they were trying also to entertain their Soviet guests. But uh, but uh, that was considered to be something completely not appropriate by by the Soviets. The way how uh, Hitler was portrayed there, how how the the officers were dressed. So it's it's very interesting again the the on on the in terms of the official facade, in terms of the official pronouncements. The Soviet regime is a very puritan regime that rejects uh, many parts of uh, of uh, kind of a more liberal relationship uh, including relationship between uh, between uh, different sexes but uh, that is on the surface but in reality what what happens is that uh, you look at the number of women that were raped when the red army moved especially into eastern europe and then into germany uh, so it's it's a Puritan on the surface, and then really on, on many levels very immoral uh, in terms of the practices that uh, the, 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 that regime uh, consciously or unconsciously encouraged. So it it, it was really very 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 um, funny to read that report about about how about bad morals and and bad, bad bad behavior of the americans when it was part of a of a really again uh, a costume party and there was a lot of humor there
1: it really highlights the the underlying conflict so well that you're talking about uh, as we turn to the end of the book where you begin to look at the transition from the grand alliance to the emerging cold war you write that soviet american encounters which began at Poltava, continued in Berlin. How so?
2: The main reason for that was that uh, despite of being allies for so long, there was very little contact uh, between the Soviet and American military. And uh, the uh, those relationships that were in Poltava between the American officers and the Soviets, they were really on their respective sides, they were experts. uh, The the Americans who were at Poltau were experts on the Soviet Red Army, and uh, vice versa is is true for the Soviets. So uh, those cadres were used by both sides when uh, they had to negotiate the uh, um, politics in Berlin and in Germany, where uh, Germany, again, was jointly occupied by the Soviet Union and Western allies, and the same was true for Berlin. So those cadres who on both sides had already experience in dealing with each other, they were also brought to Berlin. So uh, again, in, in, in that, in that sense, the Poltava story gets its continuation in Berlin. But again, it's already a different, different stage. And the, the Americans in particular, they don't have also the illusions, the kind of illusions that they had when they first came to To the Soviet Union in 1943. It's really the beginning already of the Cold War and for many of them it's already started in Poltava and now it's brought to to Berlin.
1: The same old suspicions of anyone who had developed friend relations at Poltava, especially women, keep rearing their head over the years. You trace the fate of several women who dated Americans on the base uh, through the 40s and 50s. Could you tell us a bit about this, uh, as you style it, a witch hunt?
2: Yes. Well, it's it's really a sad, sad story. Uh, Some of these women were uh, harassed and uh, then uh, followed uh, or were under surveillance of the um, KGB all the way into the 1960s. And, um, the, once the Cold War, uh, really reached its peak in the early 1950s, um, the, um, Soviet secret police was on the lookout for the American spies. And those poor women, they were right in, in, in the middle, right in the center of the attention of the, of the secret police. Uh, they they were interrogated they were recruited and most of the time recruited to spy on on their um, uh, friends who also were dating Americans, and there were also situations in which they tried to use these women to Establish contacts or re contacts with the Americans uh, who already, after the second, after the Second World War, of course, came back to the U.S. and and were living there. I have a couple of such of such stories. There, one of them is uh, about the American officer of uh, Russian Russian um, extraction with the Italian last name. His his name was Igor Reverdito, and uh, he, was, uh, he was baiting uh, one of the women in my story. And then she was recruited in the 1950s and was forced to write letters to the U.S. trying to figure out where he was. Uh, Igor Reverdito spoke Russian, and like uh, quite a few people who spoke Russian, was suspected just on the basis of that of being a spy. Um, another, another story involves, um, a person who later became, a uh, quite prominent academic and got his degrees from Harvard. Um, his name was Judge Fisher. And, um, Judge Fisher, for a short period of time, either met a woman or was dating a woman. And again, uh, he was considered, uh, to be, he was at the top of the list of suspected spies. He never was a spy. Uh, FBI actually suspected him for a while of, uh, um, uh, working for, for, for the other side, working for the Soviets. Uh, but it's, 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 it's a continuation of the story of a police state and, uh, women who, who were unlucky to, to date Americans were then viewed as, as potential American spies. Lives of some of them was destroyed by this.
1: You mentioned Fisher. He's a fascinating figure throughout this. Was that a case of serendipity? Was there a collection of his files at Harvard, or did he just pop up, and the uh, the school connection just was there in the background?
2: Well, um, he uh, he is very prominent in the in the uh, files of the uh, of the former KGB files in Cave. Mm-hmm. So I never heard about him. Before I looked at those files, then I started to try to f- figure out, like with anybody else, who, who that was. And then I discovered that absolutely fascinating story of an uh, American academic who was born in Berlin, grew up in Moscow because his father was a leftist journalist and uh, he, he parked his family in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s. And then that family. Got out of the Soviet Union only after the obvious the help of Eleanor Roosevelt. They wouldn't. They wouldn't let them out. And um, eventually, uh, George Fisher really ends ends at Harvard. So again, that was that was a big surprise. There is another figure in my story who also ended at Harvard. Uh, at Harvard that was Franklin Holtzman. and again. I established uh, contacts with the families of some of these people, main characters in my book. So with sons of Franklin Holtzman, um, later this month, actually it will be on November 12th. We are going to have at Harvard a roundtable on the book, but also on Franklin Holtzman and uh, his sons are going to take part in that, uh, in that roundtable. I also met younger brother of George Fisher, Vic Fisher, uh, absolutely very very interesting person. One of the uh, one of the um, uh, drafters of the Constitution of Alaska, whom I met uh, met when I visited Alaska. Uh, son of Igor Riverdito, Tony Riverdito. So all of these uh, stories that started in the KGB archives in Kiev eventually brought me to to the United States and put in touch with some really very interesting people.
1: And the FBI archives when it comes to Fisher's case.
2: Oh yes, yes. Uh, 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 FBI files. It, it was really, really uh, something that I didn't expect to find, but When you can get both KGB and FBI files on the very same person, uh, you start thinking, what an irony of the situation. And again, that's that's one of the realities of the Cold War, when people who were either caught in the middle or put themselves in the middle were under suspicion by both sides.
1: It's also another one of those great windows into how the two different systems approach suspect uh, i just another great little vignette but on that note you draw the book to a close using the history of poltava as a lens to view those differences between systems we've talked about the book everything's laid out on the table any points you want to underline for us again
2: uh well uh, again it's um, as i mentioned earlier there is a Really big uh, argument regarding the World War II, uh, the Grand Alliance, and the start of the Cold War. Uh, but uh, it's 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 uh, it, it is there. Uh, I, I arrived to that to that argument uh, through looking at the lives and and life stories of those people. they they're, they're very real people. Their families are still around. Their children are around. Um, uh, so, it's, it's, it was a very interesting experience for me. Again, uh, it's the sources led me to the people, and then people's stories led me to that, to that broader conclusion and, and argument and contribution to a big, uh, big academic debate.
1: Well, it certainly makes for excellent reading, and I heartily recommend it to everyone out there. But what are we looking to you uh, next? I, I presume you're not slowing down.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, once again, it's the the uh, uh, declassified archives, the KGB archives from Kiev, that um, really suggested a topic for me. And uh, what I'm working on now is a history of the um, Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, uh, again try to introduce the the soviet sources and the soviet perspective on that coming from those archives because uh, one thing that probably we, we don't think about or don't know about is that um, uh, every single missile that was delivered to cuba back in 1962 was built in what is today an independent state of ukraine which, which is now in the news <laughs> for different reason true mm-hmm. 80% of all the troops and all supplies that went to to Cuba went through the black sea ports in Ukraine and that means that the local KGB archives have a lot of of uh, really interesting and fascinating material on the on the Cuban missile crisis so uh, you sometimes you find you find these uh, documents and stories and, and people in most unexpected places. And I found this new information and new angle on the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the archives in Kiev.
1: Well, I look forward to uh, having you back when the time comes.
2: We'll be happy to be back.
1: All right. Well, we look forward to it. Thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. And thanks, thanks for this conversation.
1: Well, that does it for us here at New Books in History. Once again, we've been chatting with Serhii Plohi about Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front, American Airmen Behind the Soviet Lines, and the Collapse of the Grand Alliance. Forgotten Bastards is available from Oxford University Press at a price that is as reasonable as the book is readable. Any of you out there interested in social history of the trenches with a strong emphasis on human interest will thoroughly enjoy reading about the characters anchoring this narrative. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.